I'm beginning a brand new series today, and I'm going to start talking about Paul's secrets to happiness. And, uh, you know, this needs a little bit of an introduction because a lot of people don't actually think of Paul as being this happy person. And they think about all of the things that he endured in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It lists many of the persecutions he went through. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, it talks about being beaten and shipwrecked and in prison and all of these things that happened unto him. Uh, he talked about travailing in birth for people. And so, anyway, most people don't really think of Paul as being a happy person. But one of the points that I'm wanting to make is... Uh, that the book of Philippians, which this series is going to be primarily a study through the book of Philippians. Philippians was written from prison. Paul was in prison when he wrote it. And he has, uh, I forget the exact number now, but I think it's 17 times or something like that, that he used the word joy, rejoice, rejoicing during this letter to the Philippians. Here he was in prison facing possible execution and yet Paul was just rejoicing and praising God. And I'm going to read here in Acts chapter 16 about when Paul went to Philippi and he was thrown into prison and in the midst of prison with his back beaten and his flesh raw from, this, uh, from these stripes and his feet and his hands in the stocks, Paul and Silas burst out into praise at midnight. And, uh, you know, this is just so contrary to what most people would do. If you had been beaten, you know, most people, if you even have somebody roll their eyes at you and say something about you being a religious fanatic or, oh, you're one of those or something like that, that just depresses people for days and they can't get over it because they're suffering persecution. Here's a man who was beaten and had these terrible things happen, and yet in the midst of this terrible situation, in a dungeon where there was no lights, there was no sanitary conditions, I can guarantee you there were rats, there were all kinds of things, you know, that just most people would be overwhelmed with this. Paul and Silas broke out into song and praising God at midnight. Now let me put a little parenthesis here and say that there's a few people that have heard about the power of praise and that they know that it, it says in Matthew chapter 20 that praise is strength to still the enemy and the avenger. And there are a few people who've heard teachings like that that will praise God in difficult situations, but the real motivation behind it isn't total praise to God. It's, it's a weapon that they're using to overcome the devil and to obtain some end. And even though that's not completely wrong, did you know that Paul and Silas didn't praise God as a weapon just to try and, you know, overcome the devil and stop their uh, possible execution that was looming and things like that? And you can see that because when they both broke out into praise, God got to patting his foot and to the music, sent an earthquake, and this was an unusual earthquake. It didn't destroy anything. It just opened up all the prison doors and it made everybody's prison chains fall off. And so Paul and Silas were released from the stocks. And when they were released, they didn't quit praising God and run out because they had obtained their goal. Did you know that they just kept praising God? They weren't praising God to get something, to obtain something, to uses some kind of a weapon against God. Here's a novel thought. They were praising God because they really loved God and they were just praising Him. In the midst of a terrible situation, being in prison, 
facing possible execution, terrible pain, and on and on we could go. Here they were just praising God for no ulterior motive. They were praising God because they really loved God. Boy, that is powerful. So I say these things as a way of introduction that I'm talking about Paul's secrets to happiness. And Paul was a very happy person. Now, this didn't mean that he was silly about it. It didn't mean that he didn't face reality. He talked about the care of all of the churches that came upon him. He labored and travailed in birth until people uh, had Christ formed on the inside of them. And yet, through all of these adversities, Paul was a super happy and blessed and prosperous man. And I think that there's lessons for us to learn. And let me also say that these, what I'm calling secrets to Paul's happiness, really aren't secrets at all. I mean, they're, they're out in the open, especially in the book of Philippians. I'm going to be studying basically verse by verse through the book of Philippians in this series. I mean, they're there for everybody to notice. They're hidden in plain sight. And yet, the truths, the things that made Paul such a victorious Christian and made him happy in the midst of persecution are completely foreign to the average person, even the average Christian. I'm going to be taking the life of Paul and using that to show you some things that, <laughs> excuse me, that I think are going to make a difference in your attitude. And if you can adopt these same values and the same attitudes, the same outlook that the Apostle Paul had, then I can guarantee you, you can get the same results that he had to where he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Paul said that because that's what he was living. He had learned to be content, even in prison, even facing possible execution, even in shipwreck, even under persecution, even with rejection and criticism and be ha being hated of all men. And on and on we can go. Paul was a man who was rejoicing and talking about the glory of God and for him to live as Christ and to die is even better. If you would like to have those kind of results, well, then you need to adopt the thinking that produced this kind of results. You know, Proverbs 23, 7 says, As he thinketh in his heart, so is he. The reason people are the way they are is because of the way they think in their heart on the deep heart level. Not necessarily just intellectual knowledge and thoughts, but what do you think at your heart level? That's the way that your life is going. And if you're depressed and if you're discouraged and if you are overwhelmed and hopeless and sorrowful and on and on you can go with these things, I can guarantee you it's because of your thinking, not because of your circumstances. So, I'm, as I said, this is primarily a study through the book of Philippians, which Paul wrote to the Philippians and he was in prison in Rome at the time, and he's telling them about all of these things, and I'm going to be gleaning truths from that. But let me start by turning over to Acts chapter 16, because this is where Paul got the commission from God to go to Philippi and minister to these people. And to understand the background of what Paul experienced in Philippi and stuff is essential to understanding the letter that he wrote to the Philippians and all of these things that we're going to be talking about. So let me start in Acts chapter 16. And in verse um, 9, it says, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. And after that he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia 
And notice this in verse 10. It says, Assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel unto them. Now I'm going to make a major point of this. Let me just finish the rest of this story. I'm going to summarize some of this because it will save time. But he went over into Macedonia. The first city that he went to was Philippi. He found this woman, Lydia, and uh, he ministered to her. She got born again and her family got born again. And Paul began to start using them and their support and their connections to spread the gospel. And he began to start making a huge impact. There was this demon-possessed girl who came after them and started saying that these are the voices of God. These men are of God. Most people would think, well, that's good. But I tell you, to have a demon-possessed person saying that about you is a kiss of death. And after a long period of time, Paul was finally grieved, and he just turned and cast the devil out of this girl. And when the people who had made money off of her through her soothsaying and all of the things that she did, they got very upset. They uh, formed a riot and brought Paul and Silas before the magistrates and lied about them and said that they were doing all of these terrible things, which they weren't doing. It was just the fact that they had lost money because they were merchandising this demon-possessed girl and using her supernatural powers for their own advantage. And they lied about him. And anyway, the magistrates uh, believed the businessman who had lost this money. They beat Paul and Silas and uh, put them into prison, into the dungeon, into the lowest part of the prison, put their feet and their hands in the stocks. And it says in verse 23, And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. Again, some people don't look at Paul as being a, a joyful person, but man, this is a tremendous testimony that after these terrible things that happened, here they are giving thanks to God, praying and singing praises unto God. And it says, and the prisoners heard them. You know, if you look at this up in the Greek, it literally means that the prisoners hung on every word. They didn't just hear it in their physical ears. They heard it in their, in their heart. It ministered to the prisoners. And to prove that, when the earthquake came and the prison doors were open and all of the chains fell off, none of the prisoners left. Now, these were people that were in there for, you know, whatever reason. It could have been robbery, could have been murder, could have been rape, could have been all kinds of things. But these were people that were uh, had all of these problems, and yet when they were freed and their prison doors were open, not a one of them left. Boy, that's powerful. I tell you, there's a message in that. I hadn't got time to preach on that, but that's awesome. In verse 26, it says, And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's bands were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awakening out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. And so this jailer knew that when this earthquake came, when he saw that the prison doors were open, he figured that his life was shot. He was going to be killed by the Romans. And so he was just going to kill himself. And it says in verse 28, But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Now there's a number of miracles here. 
The very fact that the prisoners didn't leave is a miracle. Paul and Silas were in the dungeon, in the deepest part of the dungeon, and it says later that the jailer had to get a light and come in. They didn't even have any light where they were. It was impossible for Paul and Silas to know that all of the prisoners were still there. They didn't know it because they saw it. They didn't know it because somebody had told them this. They were operating in a gift of the Holy Spirit. They also didn't know what this jailer was doing. This was the Holy Spirit speaking through them. He gave them revelation that the jailer was about to kill himself. The Holy Spirit gave them revelation that all of the prisoners were still there. And Paul just spoke this out. This was a gift of the Spirit operating. Then he called for a light, talking about the jailer, called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved and thy house. Boy, there are a lot of powerful things here. But the point I'm trying to say is that this is the background. A man who had been unjustly beaten, condemned, put in prison and under these terrible circumstances, and yet he was just worshiping God at midnight with his feet and hands in the stock. How could he do that? Well, here's one of the keys. The very first thing I want to mention is in Acts chapter 16, verse 10. It says, after he had seen this vision, the previous verse talked about that he saw a man of Macedonia saying, come over into Macedonia and help us. And this was in a dream. So this was a night vision. And after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. So here's the very first thing that I believe is one of the keys to true happiness, and that is that Paul knew what God had called him to do. He obeyed it and was doing what God told him to do. So you could say this, that he was in the center of God's will, and because of that, then whatever happened, he could rejoice and praise God because he knew that he was there at God's will. Now this is big. And I don't think that most people put the importance on this that it really should have. But for you to experience true happiness, you have to know that you're doing what God made you to do. Now, I could spend weeks ministering on this one point. I'm trying to move on and cover 20 things that were the keys to Paul's happiness, and so I haven't got that much time to spend on this. But I've got a teaching entitled How to Find, Follow, and Fulfill God's Will that will expound on a lot of these points that I am going to touch on today. And if you really would like to get that, you can go to our website. You can get that. You can get a book. Uh, We've got a study guide on it. We've got DVDs, CDs. You can call in and get those materials. But for you to really experience true joy and true peace and true fulfillment, you need to quit doing your own thing and you need to know that you're doing what God has called you to do. This says specifically that they were assured that God had led them into Macedonia. And one of the reasons that they could rejoice and praise God even after being falsely accused, beaten with whips, put in a dungeon, put their feet and hands in the stocks, facing possible execution and all of these things is because they knew that they had done what God told them to do. And I'm telling you that there is a satisfaction, there is a peace and a contentment that comes when you know that you're doing what God has called you to do that you cannot have any other way. 
As a matter of fact, I'm going to make a statement here that I really don't have time to fully explain. So again, if you would like to get further explanation, please get this teaching on uh, how to find, follow, and fulfill God's will. But did you know that sometimes God is the one who gives you a holy dissatisfaction? Now, I'm not talking about that God makes you miserable. I'm not talking about that God is one that's tormenting you and things like this. No, the Bible says in John chapter 10 that it's the thief comes to steal and kill and to destroy. But I am come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. God's will is for you to have an abundant life. But I'm telling you that God many times will stir you up on the inside and give you a dissatisfaction because the direction you're going is not the direction that God wants you to go. And this is one of the ways that God leads us and guides us is through the desires of our heart. And if you are doing things that aren't what God wants you to do, there is going to be a holy dissatisfaction. You were made for a purpose. And again, I've got lengthy teaching on this. I'm just saying these things very quickly. But in uh, Galatians chapter 1, Paul talked about that he was separated under the gospel from his mother's womb. In uh, Jeremiah chapter 1, the Lord spoke to Jeremiah and says, Before I formed you in your mother's womb, before you came forth out of her belly, I sanctified you and I ordained you to be a prophet unto the nations. God has a purpose for, for you from your creation from the very time that you were conceived. It's not that God looks at you and sees what your talents and what your giftings and what your desires are and then He responds to you and chooses. No, everything about you, whether you're a male or female, what color you are, where you were born, everything about you was designed by God to fulfill a purpose. God has a purpose for every person's life and you are not going to reach full contentment full joy, peace, and happiness until you find what God's purpose for your life is and you begin to do it. There is something about being in the center of God's will that is so satisfying that even if there are, you know, rejection, persecution, problems that go along with it, you just, you just have a peace that you can't get if you don't know that. You know, I got turned on to the Lord in 1968. My best friend was in this same prayer meeting the same night. We both got on fire for God. And I mean, both of us just took off because we had a zeal for God. And both of us, God spoke to us about quitting school and devoting ourselves full-time to the Lord. And so we both did that. When we did that, this was the height of the Vietnam War. It made us eligible for the draft and we were both going to be drafted. Well, I just decided that, you know, I was going to follow God. God told me to do this, and whatever the consequences were, it's fine with me. So I got drafted, and I got sent to Vietnam. My friend uh, was facing the exact same thing, and he just panicked thinking about going to Vietnam. So he went and talked to a recruiter. He volunteered. He went in for three years. I was in for a total of 19 months, just over a year and a half. He was in for three years, and he avoided Vietnam. He went to Korea. But did you know we wrote back and forth, and Steve just said, I think I've missed God. I should have just trusted God, and if God, you know, God will take care of me. But he lived for those three years in um, turmoil, and didn't have peace because he felt like he missed God and out of fear just did something wrong. And you know what? It affected him. And uh, 
He didn't renounce his faith in the Lord, but he cooled off. And today, um, you wouldn't even know that he was ever in that same place where I was touched and things like that. It, he went a totally different direction. And I'm telling you, a large part of it came because he was just constantly saying, I think I missed God. And therefore, he felt like all of the things that were happening to him, all the pressures and stuff, he, he felt like I'm, I brought this upon myself. He wasn't able to appropriate God's grace and mercy in that situation. I went through Vietnam, suffered much more negative circumstances than he did. But see, I had a peace knowing that, God, I'm doing what you've told me to do. These things that are happening to me are the consequences of what you told me to do. And therefore, I felt like God was responsible. God, you're going to have to deal with this. God, you're going to have to protect me. God, you're going to make these things work. And you know what? It just made a huge difference. This is the first key or the first secret of Paul's success. He knew he was doing what God had called him to do. Therefore, all of the negative things that came as a result, no problem. Boy, I tell you the peace and the satisfaction of knowing that you are doing exactly what God told you to do. There is nothing like this in the world. And one of the reasons that many of you don't have peace and joy and contentment in your life is because you don't know that you are doing what God called you to do. You're doing what life has just dealt you. You are just following circumstances. You're like a pinball. You know, most people honestly are very similar to a pinball. You just pull this lever back, you launch that ball, and then it's just boing, boing, boing. You bounce off, this happened to you, so you go this direction, and this person rejected you, and so and you just do this, this, and, you know, this is kind of the way that a lot of people's life is. It's just, they didn't plan it, it's just happening. I'm telling you, that's not the way God made us to be. God made every one of you with purpose. And you've only got one chance of getting that purpose right. And it's not going to just naturally happen. There's a lot of people that put so much faith into fate. And I really dislike that whole concept. Uh, there's even a lot of Christians. And I know I'm probably countering a lot of people's religious traditions right here. But there's a lot of Christians that believe in the sovereignty of God. That nothing happens but what God allows. And that God somehow or another like a... A celestial chess game just moves you supernaturally and that everything in your life is ordained by God. I'm telling you that that is rubbish. That is trash. That is not what the Bible teaches at all. God does not cause everything that happens in your life. That is not what the Word of God teaches. You know, another thing that goes right along with this is that there's a lot of people that think that if you are in the center of God's will, then that just guarantees that everything is going to be smooth sailing. And there's many Christians that will look for the, the simplest, smoothest, easiest way for things to happen, assuming that that is some kind of a verification that you are in the center of God's will. Right here, this very story of Paul and Silas going to Philippi disproves that. Because they had this vision, and they knew for sure that God had called them to go into Macedonia. They got there, and within hours of being there. They were rejected. They were maligned. They were brought before the magistrates. They were beaten. They were condemned. They were put in prison. They were put in the dungeon. Their feet and hands in stocks. Everything had gone wrong. 
according to many people's way of thinking, that is sure proof that they must have missed God somewhere. That's not true. They were exactly where God told them to be, and yet there was terrible opposition and bad things that happened. This idea of thinking that if you are doing what God calls you to do, then everything's just going to automatically work is incorrect. The Bible doesn't teach that circumstances are how you discern God's will. I know many people pray for that. No, God, if you want me to do this, then just let all of these things line up and fall into place. I mean, I've heard stories about people saying, God, if you really want me to do this, then let this dog walk this direction and a cat this direction. I mean, it's stuff that's as stupid as that. God, let this light just, let all of the lights turn green so that I won't stop. That is a stupid terrible way for you to discern God's will. And there are some people that think that if God is calling them to do something, that everything just falls in line. I've had many, many people talk to me about coming to our Bible college, and they say, God has spoken to me and told me that I'm supposed to come, and I'm just waiting on a confirmation. If my house sells, if this happens, if every person is in agreement, if everybody agrees with what I'm and on and on they go. And yet they started by saying that they feel God has told them and now they're just looking for circumstances for all of the planets to align and then that'll be a confirmation to them. That is not what the Word of God teaches. The Word of God does not teach that circumstances either confirm or uh, dissuade you that God has called you to do something. But if you were going to use circumstance, I don't think you should, but if you were going to use it, I could show you more examples of people who did exactly what God told them to do and it looked like all hell broke loose. If you were going to interpret God's will by circumstances, it would probably be more accurate to say that if there is opposition, if, you, if there's resistance, if it seems like everything is going wrong, that's probably more of an indicator of God's will. Now again, I don't think that you should use circumstances one way or the other, but I'm saying that it is just scripturally incorrect to think that everything is going to work out smoothly if you do what God tells you to do. You know, in my life, the Lord has just spoken to me. He's given me things, and if God tells me to do something, I'll do it if it hair lips the devil. I'll do it if it causes my own destruction. And I know some of you think, well, that's easy for you to say, but I've lived it. You know, I was in a situation where I'd been in ministry for over 10 years. I had struggled. Uh, people stayed away from my meetings by the thousands. And we were just struggling financially in every single way. In Childress, Texas, we finally began to have about 100 people coming to the church. And we were eating on a regular basis. I actually bought a house. It looked like we were going to live and not die. Things were going good. And then... God told me to move to Pritchett, Colorado, which is so close to the end of the earth that you can see it from there. I mean, it is no place. There was only 144 people in the town, and the next closest town had 100 people. It was in the middle of nowhere. There was 10 people in a church in a town of 144. Did you know that the potential there was not very good? And God told me to leave this church that for the first time we were running a hundred people. It looked like I was going to live and not die. We had bought a house. Things were working. And God told me to leave it all and go to a place, a town of 144 people, 10 people in the church. And you know what? 
I knew it was God's will, and I just did it. And in the natural, it looked like there was no way to succeed, that the only way I would ever leave Pritchett, Colorado, was feet first. And yet, I, that's what God told me to do, and I just did it. And forget the consequences. Forget whatever it is. Quit leaning under your own understanding. I just did what God told me to do. And did you know that I had a supernatural peace and satisfaction? There was a lot of criticism. There was a lot of rejection. I, I received a lot of persecution. I had people threaten to kill me while I was there. And yet there was such a supernatural peace. And not long after I was there, I had to leave that church. But it was the open door to the radio ministry and then the television ministry. That's when we incorporated the Andrew Womack Ministries, 1978. Everything began to work. It turned out that it was a good thing, but it looked like it was going to destroy me. I'm just saying that you do not use circumstances to determine God's will. You go by what God says. And Paul assuredly gathered that God had sent him into Macedonia. And that's one of the reasons, one of the primary reasons that he was able to break out into song and rejoice because even though everything had gone wrong, he was exactly where God wanted him to be. He knew something good would come out of it. And sure enough, the jailer got born again. His household got born again. All of these prisoners got born again. It fell out rather to the furtherance of the gospel. And I tell you, you need to know what God's will for your life is. There are some things that God created you to do that I can't do. No one else can do. You are unique. God has put you in a position where you can use what God has done in your life. And I tell you, if you start fulfilling that, if you get into the center of God's will, there is going to be a satisfaction, a joy, a peace, a contentment that comes over you that you can't get if you are outside of God's will. So that was the very first thing. Let me turn over to the book of Philippians. And like I said, this is basically just going to be going through this book of Philippians a letter that Paul wrote from prison. He was in prison in Rome at this time. And Paul, this is probably the happiest letter that he ever wrote. I think there's 17 times in this book that he used the word joy, rejoice, rejoicing. It's the happiest book. He was praising God. He was more optimistic than any other letter that we have a record of him writing. And yet he was in prison facing possible execution. And yet there is just this tremendous joy. To most people, they cannot rejoice if they have the slightest little bump in the road, much less a situation where you're possibly facing death and unjust imprisonment and being slandered. And at this time that he was in Rome, he had been in prison for two years in Judea. And then he was a year in transit going to Rome and he experienced a shipwreck and was cast upon an island, had a snake bite him, and it looked like he was going to die, but instead he turned it around for revival. And then he had been in prison now in Rome for a year or two. So this is at least four years, maybe five years or more, that Paul had been in prison. And yet he is just praising God and worshiping God. And he is so joyful. I'm telling you, there are some people today that you think that can happen. It did happen. And it does happen today. And if you would adopt the attitude that Paul had, if you would have his value system, you would be able to rejoice in the midst of whatever is coming your way. Circumstances are not an excuse for being depressed and discouraged. 
So here's Paul speaking in the book of Philippians. He says in verse 1, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus which are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Grace be to you in peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 3 he says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all with making request with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Boy, there's a lot of things in these verses. I'm not going to be able to bring all of this out, but I just want to point out that I believe the second thing that I'm going to mention that is a secret or a key to Paul's happiness and success was that he thought of other people. He was geared towards other people more than he was geared towards himself. And you can see that right here because he says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all making request with joy. Paul was in prison. Paul had been in prison for at least four years. He had been slandered. He had been shipwrecked. Uh, there's just all kinds of negative things going on. And yet here's Paul saying, every time I pray, I thank God for you. In every prayer. And you know, Paul is the one that said, pray without ceasing. So I believe that Paul was praying constantly and he was constantly remembering these Philippians and praying for them. Now this says volumes. And this is one of the keys are the secrets to why Paul was able to rejoice even in the midst of prison is because he was thinking about other people. He was praying for them. I'm telling you, if you are depressed and discouraged, and I know some of you are going to take this as a criticism, but again, I'm telling you the truth trying to help you. If you're depressed and discouraged, if you're fearful, if you've lost hope, it's because you are totally self-absorbed. You are thinking about yourself. You are focused on yourself and your situation and you forget other people and all of these kind of things. I tell you, I meet people all of the time who are depressed and discouraged and they just live in this little prison that they have made for themselves. They just think about their problems. They won't get out and minister to anybody else. They won't do anything. They just close the door, pull the curtains... They lock themselves in and they just commiserate and sit there thinking about nothing but their problems. I'm telling you, you are not going to be a happy person if that's you. One of the things you've got to do is you've got to get out of yourself. If you are all wrapped up in yourself, you make a very small package. You need to get out of yourself. You need to go find somebody else. If you're sick, go find somebody else who's sicker than you and go bless them and pray for them and help them. And you know, if nothing else, there's a scripture in Luke 6:38 that says, Give, and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over shall men give into your bosom. For with the same measure that you meet with all, it shall be measured to you again. Now that applies to money, but it's not limited to money. You know, if you need healing in your body, go give healing to someone. Go pray for them. Go find somebody that has the exact thing that you have or something worse and you begin to pray and intercede and focus on getting them healed. And you know what? As you give, 
It'll be given back unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together. One of the quickest ways to get healing manifest in your life is to go give healing to somebody else. If you need finances in your life, go give finances to somebody else and begin to bless them and it'll be blessed back to you. If you need joy and happiness, go find somebody that needs some joy and happiness and give to them and bless them. And somebody might be saying, well, I don't feel like doing that. I'm going to deal with this more as we get into this. But you know what? Just pull your thumb out of your mouth and do what's right. And quit letting feelings dominate you. If you have need in your life, get somebody else and go to meeting their needs. Go to blessing them. And don't go and say, man, I'm so miserable myself, but I think I'll give and help you. Maybe it'll help me. That's, that's a wrong attitude. Don't even go tell people about your problems. Go out and just try and be a blessing to somebody else. Go down to the grocery store to someplace and find a person who looks like, man, they just are having a rough day and just say something nice to them. Compliment them on the way that they look. Say, God bless you. Have a great day. Do something. You know, Jesus said it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. Most people are just totally in the receiving mode. That's all they're looking for. I need this, this, and this. But you can actually get to where it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. You can get to where you get blessed. I don't know how this works, but when you bless other people, when you go to giving to them financially, emotionally, just friendship, being kind to someone... Whatever it is, you go to giving to other people, you're the one that gets blessed. I've seen this. I've been into nursing homes. I've ministered in jails. I've been, um, you know, in hospitals. I've been in places where people are just desperate. And the compassion of God comes up in you. And you go to loving them and you go to blessing them and thinking about someone else and it helps you. Again, I don't have the right words to express this, but I'm telling you, this is the way it'll work. There are some of you that the reason you're miserable is because you have isolated yourself and you are so focused on your own problem, you will not let go of it. You will not think about anything else. You won't pray for anybody else. Here's Paul in prison facing possible execution. For four or five years, he had been oppressed Terrible things happen, and he said, every time I pray, I praise God for you. I think about you. I remember your fellowship in the gospel. I remember what you've done for me, the kindness that you've shown to me. Paul was into other people. And I'm telling you, this is one of the secrets of happiness is that you are going to have to be a person that gets outside of yourself. You need to have something bigger than yourself to live for. That is a powerful truth. I'm telling you this, I just feel like I could camp here for days or weeks talking about this because our culture has exalted self to a place to where it is ungodly. It's idolatry. And I'm telling you, I'm not saying that you aren't important. God loves you and so that places tremendous value on you. But it is, you are not the only person in this universe. Sad to say, there are a lot of people that this old joke about how many people does it take to screw in a light bulb, with most people it's just one. You just stand there and hold the light bulb because the whole world revolves around you. You are the center of the universe. You're only thinking about yourself. And I'm telling you, if that is your attitude, which is the prevalent attitude that's in our world today, 
It's encouraged. It's promoted. And if that is your attitude, you are going to be one miserable, sad person. Because I can guarantee you, life isn't fair. We live in a fallen world. People are going to rub you the wrong way. Things are going to decay. Things are going to wear out. Something's going to break. Something's always going to be going wrong. And Satan has got plenty of people to come across your path and push your hot button. And if it's all about you, then you are never going to be happy. But you know what? You can get to where you love other people. You can be a channel of God flowing His love through you to other people. You can get to where you think about them. And when you do that, Somehow or another, as you give, it's given back unto you. As you show love, you receive love. You receive more than what you give. As you show compassion and kindness, you receive more back. Instead of focusing on all of your problems, take a lesson from Paul. Paul was in prison, and here he is thanking God every single time he prayed for these people and their kindness and their goodness and thinking about them and thinking about other people. And he said this in verse 6, being confident of this very thing that he that hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know why he was happy? Because he loved these people and he had prayed for them and he knew God was prospering other people. And if other people are prospering, it didn't matter whether he was prospering or not. You know, I remember a time when I was in Childress, Texas and we were going through some hard times and it seems like that the vision God had given me was never going to come to pass. And my situation wasn't that positive. There was a lot of negatives in my situation. But a good friend of mine, Marshall Townsley, who now pastors in Albuquerque, New Mexico, he was down south of where I was in Pritchett. I forget the name. I think it was Sylvester, Texas, a little, little tiny place. And he was down there pastoring, and awesome things were happening. People were being born again, and miracles were happening, and things like this. Now, see, many people, if you had a good friend that both of you started in the ministry at the same time, and if you are struggling and your friend was prospering, there's many people that would take that and you would, this isn't fair, why aren't I prospering? It was just the opposite with me. I took great joy in thinking, man, the gospel is working through Marshall, even if I can't see it working that well in me. Paul had other people in his life. He had sown into other people, and he was taking joy and satisfaction in their prosperity. Even though he was in a situation where he was in prison and he was suffering, he was rejoicing over the impact that his life had made over the way that other people were prospering, even if he wasn't prospering at the moment. I'll tell you, this is big. This is huge. And yet, the vast majority of people that I know that are really just chronically depressed, discouraged, defeated, they're negative and stuff, it's because they don't reach out to other people. They're more like a vacuum cleaner that's just sucking everything that they possibly can for themselves. You need to reverse that process and start giving and start investing yourself in other people. And you need to connect with other people. Go out and bless them. And I tell you, if you would do that, it would make a huge difference. So that was the second thing that we're talking about, secrets to Paul's happiness. Look in verse 12. Here's the third thing. He says, But I would that you should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace 
and in all other places. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preach Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What then, notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and I will rejoice." You know, some of this is a little awkward, the wording. I believe when he's talking about that he's rejoicing that people are preaching Christ out of envy and strife and contention, not sincerely thinking that they're adding affliction to his bonds. I believe that what this is talking about is that Paul had given a defense before Caesar and he had been in prison in Rome and he had told anybody who would listen about Jesus and there were people that were mocking him. I bet you that the news just spread among all of Caesar's palace. That there's this guy locked up for believing that Jesus was the Son of God. That it was God manifest in the flesh. And yet he got crucified. His own people crucified him. He, they killed him. They buried him. But Paul says that on the third day... He rose from the dead and that now he is alive and ascended back into heaven. They were probably saying it out of mockery, thinking that they were somehow or another making his imprisonment worse by mocking him and ridiculing him. But Paul says that the word's getting out. Man, God could take those pieces of information, even if it was said in mockery, and he could use it to reveal the truth and to touch someone's life. Then there was other people who were getting bold because they were seeing Paul still standing strong, even in the midst of imprisonment and persecution, all the things he had gone through. And it encouraged other people to get out and preach the gospel more boldly. And Paul said, because of this, I rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. Now remember, the reason Paul was saying these things is because he loved these people and he knew that these people loved him. They were a part of his ministry. They had experienced relationship with God because of the Apostle Paul. And Paul is trying to comfort them. He is writing a letter from prison to comfort the people who loved him. Again, this is as rare as hen's teeth. Most people who are, would have been in prison in an unjust prison situation, in prison for four years, shipwrecked, whipped, beaten, all of these things... And if you would have been in a situation like that, most people wouldn't be caring about anybody else. You'd be wanting everybody to, why doesn't somebody minister to me? But Paul, see, was other people minded. He was thinking about other people. And he was trying to assure these people who loved him that, hey, it's okay. I'm in prison. It's a terrible situation. I tell you, prison in Paul's day wasn't like prison today where people have flat screen TVs and you know, can listen to all the music and watch whatever they want to and receive letters and do this. I, I tell you, it was prison. It was a bad situation. And instead of Paul just sitting there, why doesn't somebody minister to me and trying to suck everything towards himself and only thinking about himself? Here's Paul writing to people who he knew were concerned about him and he's trying to comfort them and assure them that he's okay. And how did he do it? He started by saying, look, it has fallen out rather to the furtherance of the gospel. Uh, this is what he goes on to say in verse um, 
18, it says, What then? Notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Christ, according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness, as always, so, also, so now also in Christ shall... so." Now also Christ shall be manifest, magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. He's trying to comfort them and he says, look, here's the, here's the logic. He's saying the gospel is being promoted. People are getting bold to preach the gospel without fear. People are mocking me, but the word is getting out. He says, so the gospel is being promoted. It's working out for the furtherance of the gospel. And he uses that to comfort people. Now think about this. If you were in prison, and if somebody said, how are you doing? And if you said, well, it's good. It's good because you know what? People are turning to Christ because of my suffering. There's not very many people. There's not one out of a thousand people that would think that way. Instead, they think about who cares about somebody turning to Christ? I'm suffering. What about me? And you would be focused on yourself and focused on your suffering. But Paul, I mean, it, this is nearly naive on his part. He just is so into other people and he is so into promoting the gospel. I mean, that is big in his life. It's huge. It's, it's his reason for living is preaching the gospel. And if... People are turning to the Lord and if the gospel is being proclaimed and people's lives are being changed because of his imprisonment, then it's worth it all. I'm telling you, you need to have something bigger than yourself to live for. I think that that's the third reason why Paul was able to rejoice in hard times is because he had something bigger than himself. The gospel was going forth and even when he was being mocked, and even when he was potentially going to face execution and all of these terrible things happening to him, if the gospel would be promoted by that, so be it. You know what? When you have that kind of an attitude and something is bigger than you, it just, it really hinders the devil in being able to affect you. If you have things that are more important than you, it really limits what Satan can do. You can go all the way back to the book of Genesis and look when Satan came against Adam and Eve and it was all about them. Has God said, you are going to be like gods if you eat of this. And it was all about them. He deceived them into thinking that somehow or another they were missing out on something. The truth is they had more abundance, more of everything before they rebelled at God than they did afterwards. But he convinced them that rebelling at God and not following God's will was the way to promote themselves. If they had been dead to themselves, if they had thought, well, you know what? God is more important than us. This creation, this world is more important than us. And we aren't going to put our needs. And they, were, they were deceived. It was, it was not true that eating of the fruit would actually promote them. It actually hurt them. But even if they had bought into the lie and if they had thought that they would have been better off, if they would have put God and the creation and everything else above themselves, they wouldn't have fallen for this temptation. It was selfish. This is how Satan comes against us. Selfishness is Satan's inroad into our life. And Paul had something that was bigger than himself, something that was more important than himself. If you don't have something that is more important than your personal success, 
then I guarantee you it's a recipe for discouragement and defeat and disaster. You need to have something that's more important than you. You are not the center of the universe. You know, I've read about people that died because they translated the Bible into the common language. And there was a period of time back when that was prohibited. And I don't know all of the reasons. I know it was demonically inspired by the devil to keep people in ignorance. You know, Jesus said in John 8.32, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. John 17.17, 17, Thy word is truth. And so the word of God getting into people's hands was a powerful, powerful tool for the gospel and Satan fought against it. And because of it, people who translated the gospel, the Bible, into a known language were persecuted. And I remember reading about one who, um, I believe it was Tyndale, who uh, translated the scriptures and he lived in Germany or someplace in Europe, but then he was uh, brought back to England and tried and he was burned at the stake. And, you know, that's a terrible, terrible thing. But within just a very few years, there was such a rebellion towards this. There was such an outcry that within, I forget the exact number of years, but less than one generation after, he was burned at the stake because he had translated the Bible into a known language. That's when King James translated the Scripture into what we call the King James Bible. And it just began to spread everywhere. Did you know that Tyndale's suffering actually was the thing that changed public opinion, that opened up the door, that released this? And his sacrifice, even though if you just looked at it from a selfish point of view, look at what this man did and what it cost him and it wasn't worth it. Well, if you look at it in just a selfish point of view, you know, you might be able to make that argument, but when you look at it in the big picture, his death is the thing that turned public opinion, that changed everything around, and within just a few years, the Bible was translated into the common language, and it sparked the Protestant Reformation. It changed the world, the Industrial Revolution. It has changed countries. It caused the founding of the United States of America because people read the Bible and and had a, a longing for freedom, etc. I mean, it changed the course of the world. And so in that sense, it was well worth it. This is what Paul is saying right here. Paul was in prison. Paul was suffering. But he had something bigger than himself, and that was preaching the gospel. And because of his imprisonment, the gospel had now been exported all the way to Rome. In Caesar's household, people were being converted even the people who didn't receive the message were spreading the message, message and getting these facts about Christ and what He did out there. And because of this, Paul said, I'm rejoicing and praising God. One of the reasons he rejoiced was because he had something bigger than himself to live for. And I'm telling you, this is essential. If you are going to experience true joy and peace and happiness, you need to have something bigger than yourself to live for. You need to have a purpose in your life that is beyond just self-promotion and self-satisfaction. Uh, you need to have something beyond yourself. This is just huge. I don't have the words. Again, I could probably spend a week on this one point. I'm trying to move along in this teaching. I'm not making as much progress as I'd like. But these things are so contrary to our society today. Our society has just put all of the emphasis on the individual 
It's all about you. It's just all about you. I'm telling you, that is a recipe for sadness and defeat. You know, it says over in uh, Luke chapter 12, I'd have to look up the verse, but Jesus was saying that a man's life does not consist in the abundance of the things which he possesses. It's not about you. You know, the American dream is get all you can, then can all you get, and then sit on your can. And it's just all about you. It's all about accumulating these things. And yet the scripture, Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. A man's life doesn't consist in the abundance of the things that he has. It's in denying yourself. It's in giving. It's in dying that you actually live. It's in rejecting yourself. It's in putting other people ahead of yourself that you actually begin to prosper. You've got to get outside of yourself. You've got to get beyond yourself. And I'm telling you, if you don't know Jesus personally, it's impossible for you to do this. Fallen human nature, it's just all about you. That is just like the default switch. This is the way we all come into the world. You don't care that your mother's been up all night long giving birth, being in labor, and she needs the rest. You don't care about there's a hundred other people in a church service that are trying to hear. But if you're a little baby, you come into this world, it's all about you. You'll wake people up in the middle of the night, feed me, change me, do something. You'll interrupt a church service. You don't care about any... You aren't aware that anybody else exists. You are 100% focused on yourself. It's all about you. Sadly, the problem is that we've got people that are 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years old, that it's still that way. You've never gotten out of yourself. I'm telling you, you're going to have to get beyond this. It may be okay when you're a week old, but if you're 20, 50 years old, you don't need to be focused on yourself. You need to get beyond yourself. You need to get something that's bigger than yourself. Human nature, it's just all about you. But when you get born again, you need to begin to start putting God's kingdom ahead of your own kingdom. If you would seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, then all of these other things would be added unto you. Mark, Matthew chapter 6, verse 33 you would find out that it's more blessed to lay your life down and to bless somebody else. Go out and make somebody else's day. You need to put God's kingdom ahead of you. Boy, this is, this is important. You've got to get something bigger than yourself. And then, verse 20, this is Philippians chapter 1, verse 20, and look at this. He says, According to my earnest expectation... And prayer and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be manifest in my body, whether it be by life or by death. What a radical statement. Most people, they may put other people in some other cause ahead of themselves to a certain degree, but if it comes to, man, you're going to have to die in order to accomplish this goal. Boy, most people right there, they just don't even entertain that. Everything is about their self-preservation. And if it was going to cost them their life, it doesn't matter what the benefit to anybody else or anything else is. It's all about them. Paul was saying that, man, he was, he was confident that Christ was going to be magnified in his body, whether it was by life or by death. And then he makes this statement in verse 21, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul, it was all about Jesus. He was dead to himself 
And Jesus and the kingdom of God was more important to him than himself. In verse 22, he says, But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Talking about prison. Yet what I shall choose, I want not. For I am in a strait between two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And having this confidence, that I, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. Paul, here's another great secret. This is the fourth thing that we've talked about. Paul was dead to himself. For him to live was Christ. It wasn't about him. It wasn't self-preservation, self-promotion. It was all about Christ. For him to live was Christ. And to die was even better. There's not very many people that think this way. That's the reason that not very many people are rejoicing amongst our problems today. And I tell you, our problems are infinitesimal compared to the things that Paul was going through. Compared to the insult, the humiliation, the things that were done to Paul, and yet he was able to rejoice. Matter of fact, Paul said this over in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, talking about all of his problems. Matter of fact, let me just read some of this, because this is just, I mean, this is amazing. This is so contrary to the way most people are thinking today. He said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8, We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So then death worketh in us, but life in you. We having the same spirit of faith, according as it is written, I believed, and therefore have I spoken. We also believe, and therefore speak, knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus, and shall present us with you. For all things are for your sake, that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God, for which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. Boy, the things that he's just said about it, they're perplexed, they're troubled on every side, they're forsaken, they're bearing about in their body the dying of the Lord Jesus, and on and on. He just talks about these terrible things, and yet he's victorious in it all. And then he sums it up in verse 17. By saying, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment. He says light affliction. He just mentioned being forsaken, troubled, having all of these things. If you turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he expounds on these light afflictions. That's being shipwrecked. That's being beaten with rods. That's being beaten with whips. That's being imprisoned. That's being defamed. That's being rejected. A night and a day he had spent in the deep. That's not even recorded in Scripture. And yet somehow he was somehow or another stranded out on the ocean for a night and a day. He had had all of these terrible things happen. He says, it's just a light affliction. Do you know there's many of you that you talk about your heavy bird and how terrible everything is. And if somebody was to ask you, how are you doing? You make them sorry that they ask. 
because you just are, nobody knows the trouble I feel. You just are having it worse than anybody. Here's Paul who had more problems than you, and he says, it's just a light affliction. Now, if Paul had more problems than you, more severe problems than you, and yet it was just a light affliction for him, then how do you justify talking about how heavy your burden is, how tough everything is? I know some of you think I'm insensitive to you. I'm not insensitive. I know that people have problems. I know some of you have terrible, terrible, terrible things that have happened to you. But I'm saying that compared to what Jesus has made available to you, compared to the life that he has, his supply is so great that it makes your need look puny in comparison. And if you are talking about how heavy your burden is, your burden isn't any bigger than Paul's, It's the way you process it. It's because you aren't dead to yourself. It's because you are alive to yourself. It's because you wouldn't say with the Apostle Paul that, man, I just want Jesus to be glorified in my body, whether it's by life or by death. If you got to where loving God was more important than loving yourself, promoting Jesus is more important than promoting yourself. If you were dead to yourself and alive unto God, I guarantee you, Satan couldn't make anything stick on you. With the Apostle Paul, they would say, you quit preaching the gospel or we'll put you in jail. He'd say, fine. And he'd just go to worshiping God at midnight and he'd see a revival and all the prisoners and the jailer get born again. And so they'd say, well, we're going to release you from jail then. And he'd say, fine. He'd go preach the gospel. And then they'd say, we're going to kill you. And he'd say, man, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I mean, he'd just reach up and, you know, in a sense, give him a hug, give him a kiss on the forehead. Man, this is great. Man, I can see Jesus before the night is up. How do you intimidate a person like that? How do you intimidate a person who is so into God that the Lord is more important than they are? You can't. And I'm telling you, this is all Satan's got on us. He doesn't have the right to do anything to you. It's through fear and intimidation, threats that he cows us and does this. If you found your life in God so that you just didn't care what other people had to say, you didn't care if they were going to kill you, it just doesn't matter. I know some of you are thinking, man, this isn't reality. You can't live this way. You know, I'm not projecting that I do everything perfectly. I haven't arrived, but I'm saying I've left. I'm seeing this work in my life. You know, back when I was in Vietnam, there was a situation where I was um, a chaplain's assistant, and I went out with the chaplain, and we spent about three hours out on this, uh, what they call forward fire support base. It was out on top of this hill, It was overlooking the Ho Chi Minh Trail. It was way, way out in the middle of nowhere. It was dangerous. And the hill was under terrible attack. And they had a few little of these, um, I don't know, corrugated steel circular type of things that they had made bunkers out of. And there was about 100 men on top of this hill. And I went out with the chaplain. And in a sense, this was a Protestant chaplain but it was similar to giving last rites to these guys. Unless something happened, these people were going to be all killed. And so the chaplain went out. We held a service. I was with the chaplain. We were there for three or four hours. And in that brief period of time that I was on this hill, I forget the exact number, but I think it was 170-something mortars landed inside of our perimeter. We were under such heavy fire that you could see the muzzle fire 
from the enemy as they were coming up the hill. And, um, I mean, it looked like we were going to be overrun. And sure enough, right, the chaplain and I were evacuated because the chaplain was a, a captain. And they evacuated him, and I went with him. And within an hour or two after us leaving, that hill was overrun, and nearly every U.S. soldier on that hill was killed. And anyway, my point is that it was a bad situation. And I remember what I was thinking. I had my M16 pointed down the hill. I never fired it because they were far enough away that it wouldn't have been, you know, it would have been a, a mistake if I'd have hit anybody. They weren't close enough. But I was having to seriously consider that hill being overrun and us being killed. And you know what I was thinking? I was exactly like Paul said. I thought, man, this is awesome. I could be in heaven by tonight. I actually got excited. I actually was just praising God and thinking, God, this is wonderful. But then I got to thinking about the Vietnamese coming against us. I said, even though I know where I'm going, what about these people? As I had my gun pointed at them, and I would have shot if they had gotten close enough. I'd have defended myself. I'd have done what I was supposed to do. But I was praying for the enemy that God would somehow or another reveal himself to them. I was praying for the guys on the hill, and I just had joy and peace facing death. This is what's available to you through Christ. You can get to a place to where you love God more than you love yourself. You love other people more than you love yourself. You can die to yourself. And until you do so, you aren't going to be able to experience the joy that the Apostle Paul had so that he could rejoice at midnight with his feet and hands in the stock, facing death. You can't do that as long as it's all about you. I'm telling you, you've got to come to the end of yourself. The end of yourself is the beginning of God. And I'm telling you, this is a plague that is in epidemic proportion in our world today. You don't hear many people talking against self-love, self-promotion, putting self ahead of everybody else. This is as rare as hen's teeth. And this is one reason that people today are so depressed and so discouraged. Did you know we have every reason to be encouraged and to be happy? We've got conveniences that make our life so much easier than our forefathers. I mean, used to. People, I mean, not very far, not very long ago, people struggled to even survive and to get by. And they didn't have this social net that would pay them for doing nothing. I mean, they had to work and they, it was an effort just to survive and to get by. Now we have so many conveniences. We can cook a meal in minutes, whereas it used to take uh, hours. We can go, uh, you know, I drive, I think it's 42 miles from my house to come into this office. Did you know back in the horse and buggy days, that was a two-day trip. I can cover distances. I can do things that couldn't have been done. We've got all of these conveniences that should make life so much better, and yet the average person is not near as happy as your forefathers who had much less who had more problems, it was so much more effort to survive and to get by than what it is for you. And yet they were happier than you are. I'm telling you, a man's life doesn't consist in the abundance of things that he possesses. Happiness is a state of mind. It's not a state of being. And one of the things that has made happiness seem so elusive and so far removed from the average person today is because it has. we have promoted self as no generation 
has ever done before. I remember when Muhammad Ali came out and said, I am the greatest. Man, that was offensive to people. People didn't go around promoting that they're the greatest. It was an anomaly. It was awkward. It was off the charts. And I guarantee you, people were very offended by that. And nowadays, uh, you would be, you know, if you're an athlete or something, you have to proclaim that you're the greatest, that you're better. You put everybody else down. You exalt yourself. It's become the fad. It's become the normal. We are now so focused on self, and we are more miserable and less satisfied and less happy with all of the entertainment, with all of the advantages, with all of the prosperity. And I'm telling you, it's, this is one of the main reasons right here is because people don't exalt Christ more than they exalt themselves. It's all about us. It's just selfish. You know, if you had a corpse here in front of me, I could spit on the corpse, I could curse the corpse, I could insult the corpse, I could ignore the corpse, and if it's a corpse, it won't respond. You know why you respond to every little thing that comes out against you? I mean the slightest little thing. People just roll their eyes. People just, you know, cut you off in traffic and don't use their blinker, and that could just ruin your day. You know why the slightest little thing ticks you off? It's because you aren't a corpse. If you were dead to yourself, if it wasn't about you, then you'd find out that things wouldn't aggravate you. Proverbs chapter 13 verse 10 says, Only by pride comes contention. It says only. It didn't say it's one of the leading causes. For certain types of people, this is what makes you have contention. No, it says only by pride comes contention. And pride here isn't just talking about arrogance, thinking you're better than everybody else. It's just talking about self-centeredness. It's just talking about being focused on yourself. I've got an entire teaching on that. Matter of fact, self-centeredness, the source of all grief. This is one of the most powerful things I've ever taught. And this would go into a lot more detail and really explain this. It's just a small little booklet, 60 pages long. It would explain this in more detail. But Proverbs 13.10 says, Only... By pride comes contention. The only thing that makes you angry, that causes contention, strife, discord, is your self-centeredness. If you weren't focused on yourself, you wouldn't take everything and you wouldn't be so offended by it. When you fall in love with God and you love God more than you love yourself, it just diffuses anger in your life. It takes strife out of your life. I've had people do things to me that I guarantee. I've had people spit in my face, spit wads of chewing tobacco on me, and I didn't get mad. My flesh, i got to admit, I felt like punching their lights out. But because of my love for God and my love for the kingdom and wanting to preach the gospel and see a life change, there's things more important than me. And because of that, I never missed a word in the sentence. I just wiped it off, kept talking to these people, kept blessing them. You can do that. I know some of you think you can't do that. That's because you are so alive to yourself. But when you find out how much God loves you, you can't do this in just yourself. Let me just say that what I'm telling you right here is humanly impossible. Without factoring God and the power of the Holy Spirit into your life, you can't turn the other cheek. You can't bless other people. You can't think more about the kingdom of God than yourself. You can't come to this attitude that Paul was talking about, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. 
But with Christ, with the new born-again spirit, you have received the love of God, the supernatural love of God. You can love God and other people more than yourself. And once you know how much God loves you and you find your total satisfaction and contentment in Jesus, you get to a place to where even though you don't like other people to be mad at you, it doesn't bother you because you aren't dependent upon other people's approval. The reason most people are so influenced by rejection and fear and intimidation is because they're codependent upon people. They are more dependent upon people than they are God. But if you ever find out how much God loves you, if you ever find your life in Jesus and get to where He is everything to you, it'll get to where who, is, who are you compared to Jesus? I had a man come up one time and just ream me out and start listing all of the things about me that he didn't like. And he just was criticizing me. And I just stopped him right in the middle. And I said, who died and made you God? And he just looked at me like, well, what are you saying? I said, you know what? Who are you? I don't know you. I said, God Almighty loves me. I'm not perfect, but God loves me and he's accepted me. So who do, who, what do I care what you have to say? You're a nobody compared to God. And this guy got really offended. Why? Well, you shouldn't feel that way. And I said, that's the way I feel. I said, you're nobody. Your opinion doesn't matter to me. And I just turned around and walked off. Left him talking to himself. You can get to a place to where if you find your satisfaction and contentment in God, it doesn't matter what other people say. It's just like Proverbs 13.10. Only by pride comes contention. The only reason you're so hurt and offended by what everybody has to say about you is because you are so alive to yourself. Because you are so important. If you get to a place to where you aren't the center of the universe, you aren't the most important thing in the world, but you love God and you love other people more than you love yourself, you'll find out it'll cause joy and peace in your life. And if people criticize you and if things go wrong, it's not that big of a deal. You are not the center of the universe. You are not the most important thing on this planet. If dying would promote the cause of Christ, I'd be glad to do it. If going to jail would help me preach the gospel, I'd be glad to do it. I'm not saying I might not have some flesh feelings, but I would subject them and I would put God first and I would choose to promote God.